Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. I think sometimes the victims can think, hmm, well, they're the police, but they trust them, they're working alongside them. So you make that first journey, that first meeting, which is vital, you make it as easy as you possibly can. Things have changed massively. They need to review that act. Mm. And they need to use people like the police to say, what part of the act has worked for the police and what doesn't? Let's mm. change it. And I didn't like bullying at school. Yeah. And were you bullied or was...? Friends around me were. Yeah. So it's the thing, isn't it, of how can I make things better? You always want to make things better, don't you? Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, the podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective. We're committed to helping to eradicate what's still a huge problem that affects every one of us. Around 50 million people are enslaved across the world, across all sorts of demographics, locations and societies. But it's a problem we can solve together. That's what we're committed to doing at The Collective, raising awareness and bringing like-minded people together who are as passionate about tackling this crisis as we are. Thank you so much for listening in. On today's episode, we're speaking to someone with more experience of dealing with survivors of modern slavery than most. Karen Anstis was part of the team that opened Bakita House, which for the last eight years has been a safe house for women who have been trafficked, enslaved and exploited. Karen talks to us about the challenges, but also the amazing joys of running a safe house for survivors as well as the legal and emotional difficulties many survivors face when trying to obtain justice. It's a fascinating conversation with one of our favourite women. So Karen, for the audience and people who don't know who you are, um, please could you tell us a bit about you and your journey and what your light bulb moment was and made you focus on human trafficking? So. I am the service manager for Caritas Paquita House, which is a safe house for female victims of human trafficking. And before that, I was a police officer in the Metropolitan Police for 31 years. So it's been quite a long journey. (laughs) Um, And the reason that I deal with trafficking, in 2000, when I was in the police, I went to what was then called the Clubs and Vice Unit. And we dealt with mainly on-street and off-street sexual exploitation. And in 2009, my unit became the trafficking unit. And we were becoming more aware in the police and in the country about trafficking because we didn't have trafficking laws to 2004. And we realised the people that we lovingly were arresting were actually traffickers mainly, not just controllers. So... I think that's where my heart went out to it because A, it's the victims that I like to deal with and B, it's a really interesting offence if you're a police officer because it covers so many things, you know, the sexual exploitation, guns, drugs, the movement of people. It's just so interesting to investigate. And I was allowed when I was in the trafficking team, we formed a a smaller unit within there to look after all the victims and witnesses so they would all get the same care. And that's where my heart was, to look after them. What does on-street and off-street trafficking mean? Or on-street 
off-street circular exploitation. So that's where the women would either be made to work on the streets or made to work in a brothel and controlled. Right, okay. So we did both, both the different types. And I think probably in the beginning, it was probably one of the more known forms of trafficking. Right. When it first started, people weren't looking at now bars and factories, but they saw the sexual exploitation as a very common form of trafficking. Right. And when you were sitting in... um in the room with the victims. Is that the first time that anyone in the police force had dealt with someone in that way? Sort of knowing that now it was trafficking and you could actually talk to them on that level. It stems back for me. So in 1985, I dealt with my first victim of rape. And there's always something in your life, no matter what you do, that will touch your heart, your soul and your mind. And you go back to it. So I did all these other specialist units, tried to prove my worth and did what I wanted in the police. But it always came back to victims of abuse, mm. always, because that first one wouldn't let me go. And I think if something touches you like that, you have to do something. You can't walk away. You can't turn your back. And so that's why I became involved. And then the vice unit, turning into the trafficking team, gave me that arena to help even more women. So you were prosecuting human traffickers even before the Modern Slavery Bill was passed. How was how was that possible? Well, there was trafficking laws in 2004. Okay. So that pre- preceded the Modern Slavery Act. And so we were using those laws, but also the laws around controlling prostitution. So controlling prostitution, it then turns out a lot of the people controlling were trafficking their victims as well. So it all became like a big awareness thing for all of us in the police, like, Actually, we're actually already doing this, which is why I think one of the reasons we became a human trafficking team, because that's what we dealt with on a daily basis. And how many people in the trafficking team? Or how many policemen and women? When I joined the clubs and vice unit, the actual vice unit only had 12 people. Wow. But the clubs and vice was a bigger team because it dealt with pornography, it dealt with all licensed premises. Um So it was a bigger team, but the the vice team was very small. And of course, when it became the human trafficking team, it became much larger. Right. And now when you look at the police, because you have mates in the police force now, do you see, I don't know if you do or not, (laughs) (laughs) do you see trafficking units across all different um, police forces, like not just the Met? Yeah, there definitely are in other forces now because we, Akita House works nationwide. So we do work with others such as Manchester. Uh, we do work with other forces that have that specialism. And I think that's what it needs. It needs the specialism of dealing with this type of victim. Right. Yeah, because, of course, what we've learned along our journey is that victim survivors, you know, you, they don't trust the police after being treated with such disrespect and, and, and you know, for so many years. And actually the way that you speak to to them has to be different from how you deal with other crimes, right? You are kind of right. I think sometimes you've just got to remember that the person in front of you, they might be a victim of something, but they're a person. Mm. So sometimes people would say to me, how do you speak to somebody that's sexually exploited? And I'd be like, there isn't a special language. Mm. It's treating them as you would expect to be treated yourself when you're dealing with them. and I think it all developed from that to Paquita House. That's how we started, really, because we were allowed to have our specialist unit looking after victims. You are exactly right when you said, you know, that first meeting 
is critical because it's the bridge building that begins of trust between the police and a victim. And often then the, the victims were from other countries. Mm. So they don't trust the police because the police in their countries can be corrupt, can be violent. So that bridge building is so important. So how we got around it, if we did large scale raids, is we'd ask the church to provide places of safety that we could take people to immediately. Mm. So sometimes we'd have 30 to 35 women because we'd raid a lot of brothels at the same time. I remember doing that brothel busting um, with the Met and then, and I can't remember the name of the police officer and it really struck me the role that the church plays in that cycle and without these safe houses and without all the care workers from the church. Yeah. There's such an important link in in saving people. You don't want to take a victim to a police station because they think you're going to arrest them or deport them. So your bridge has not even been started. So we take them to the places provided by the church and the church would also provide volunteers. So you had people alongside you. And I think sometimes the victims can think, hmm, well, they're the police, but they trust them. They're working alongside them. So you make that first journey, that first meeting, which is vital, you make it as easy as you possibly can for them. And that led to um, all the churches do this. You know, there were so many people involved, but we became particularly involved with the Catholic Church. And in 2014, we took three survivors that all imprisoned their traffickers to meet the Pope. And for them, it was a very important meeting because it was a private meeting and they could explain to him what had happened to them. And they just happened to be all three of them were Catholic. So for them, it was like the best thing that had ever happened to them in the world. And from that, the Pope created the Santa Marta group. So that's world leading police chiefs and cardinals or bishops coming together because it's a global problem. And he wanted them to raise awareness and combat it globally which they did, which was brilliant because the awareness was raised, which was what we need to do. But then we came back and Cardinal Vincent Nichols, who was at that meeting, said, how we make things even better for the police. So, of course, little hands went up and it was like, it'd be really nice if we had our own safe house where we could take the witnesses to be cared for. And that's how Akita House was born. Oh, so was it born? It was born out of the meeting with the Pope, but also from the police suggesting that to the to the church oh yes amazing yeah because we worked with them particularly closely Mm. and and so they actually listened to what we needed and what we wanted or what we thought would help these victims right or survivors time you first meet them they're victims um and it was just an idea that we floated never knew if it would happen and of course cardinal nickels made it happen Were there any particular experiences or cases when you were a police officer that kind of led you to wanting to run something like the Kita House? What were were the experiences that drove you towards running a safe house? I think overall, because I worked on the victim team and we would drop our victims off, sometimes into very nice places, but sometimes into not so nice places. And you'd think, that's not what I want for you. When I leave you tonight, I want you to be in a place where I know there will be 24-hour care and I know that things will be put in place to help you move further on in your lives. And it was just, what could I vision as the place that I wanted for them? And so I think it came a bit from that. And it comes from what their needs are. And, you know, their needs are so varied. Mm. So varied. Well, when we came to visit Bikita House, 
I think we... A few times. A few times, but the first time we had um, dinner with all the ladies and we played Uno. Yes. Or we, we what did they cook for us? Chicken. <laughs> You've got a good memory. Yeah, I, I know. Well, I remember it because it was a lovely lady and I think it was a Thai... Um, yes, it was. It was Thai because I love Thai food. Yes, it was. But I remember you gave us a tour and we walked... I think you have a exercise room mm-hmm. or a quiet room. A quiet room. Yeah. That's it for yoga yeah. and breathing. I remember thinking, oh my God, like this safe house is amazing. You know, we'd been to other safe houses and, you know, that aren't supported by the church. And I thought, wow, I can lie, lie yeah. here. And... and they were really funny because when you went, I told them who you were. So I never tell anybody before yeah. you come. And then she spent about a week running around the house going, I'll cook for a princess. I'll cook for a princess. She loved my food. She loved my food. It was like, oh, I'm never going to get her off the ceiling. She was so, loved it. She just thought all of you were lovely. And then we came back the second time and we had tea outside. In the garden. Oh, yeah, homemade ice cream. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and you had to have some Spanish lessons from our Spanish guest. Yes, because I'd just taken up Spanish. And I I did... I did speak to her, didn't I? on the same bench as you. And you had the little, and one of them had a sweet baby. Yes. Well, the boy. She isn't Spanish, actually. She's Spanish-speaking. Spanish-speaking. She has now got her own business in another country, and she sent us some pictures that she'd done of some dresses for some women that she's been making dresses for. So she's really progressed. I'll show you the pictures after. They're fantastic. So she, so... So let's let's just like round back up a little bit. So Bakita House being this incredible um, safe house that's come out of the church and the police, looks after survivors of human trafficking, modern slavery. Karen, the wonderful Karen, is sitting here. You run it, <laughs> and you are amazing in that house. By the way, when we come in, it's you such, run a tight ship. Yeah, but you're so fun with all of them, and you make it fun. We had the best time. Like you, you've got a real amazing ability to as you said really connect with with these survivors and just make it about them not about their trauma Mm. and that's something really incredible um how many how many guests have you helped over the years so we've had 169 women from age between 15 and 70 from 46 countries we've had 12 babies and we must say we've also got the cat marley he was rescued He does therapeutic cuddles and guards the new babies when they arrive. Really? Yeah, he sits by Instinct. Them. Yeah. And how long does each guest typically stay for? There is. There is no answer because the 169 women were all totally different. They're individuals and it, it's, it's based on when they feel that they're independent enough to leave or... When we think it's time, but we need to persuade them, so we have to show them what they're capable of, because sometimes they still don't believe they can actually live independently. But we can show them what they've done in the last few months and say, well, you know, you're going to college, aren't you? And they go, yeah. And you've just passed your exams. Oh, yeah. And you've been volunteering at the local charity shop, haven't you, for six months? Oh, yeah. And who makes all your appointments for the doctors? I do. So Mm. sometimes you have to remind them, or sometimes they're chomping at the bit to get out. And for people like the lovely Spanish-speaking lady that we met, you said that now she's making clothes in another country. So how long was she there and, and what's she doing now? I mean, So she did a year with us. Right. Um, she was probably one of the most fun people we've ever had. We've still got the Christmas oh. tree she made. Hmm. Um, but she has now two grandchildren. And for her, it was important to go home and rebuild her life. But she needed that time here 
to get over some of her trauma. I wouldn't say that they ever 100% get over their trauma. But she did our music therapy and our drama therapy, our yoga and our gardening and our art. She did everything that we offered. And so she was in a much better place to go home. So much so that she went home, got a job and is now supporting her family, but are in her own country. That's brilliant. Yeah. That is amazing. And another lady we met that same time, I think she was going to college and she was, I think, in the middle of prosecuting her traffickers. Uh There was a lovely, very quiet girl and she was in the middle of having police talks, I believe. Ah, I think I know who you mean. So she's. We don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. She's imprisoned one of her traffickers and two are going to court. But that's taken a long time because COVID stopped everything. It stopped asylum, immigration, court cases. just stopped everything. Wow. And how did the guests end up coming to you? Well, there's various ways, but because we partner the police, the police will phone and they could phone from a brothel, a factory, a house where somebody's enslaved and they will just say, I have this woman, we think that your house can help her, can we bring her? And they could be with us within an hour. Wow. We also have a referral system. So anybody can refer in to us. Um, there's a short form to fill in and then normally we'd reply within a few hours and then do an assessment meeting. So we have other charities because a lot of charities work with victims but they don't have housing. Mm. Yeah. Or midwifery services, the NHS, solicitors, prisons. There's so many other services that actually at the moment refer into us. And one of the women that we had last week was a totally new service and one we had four weeks ago was a totally new service so there's all people managing to find us which is really good and if you don't have enough beds at that time do you have are there other safe houses in your network where you can refer to other people so that they're taken care of there aren't really yeah so if we're full they would have to go to the nrm and will you tell our listeners a bit more about the national referral mechanism and how long it looks after victims or survivors for Basically, it's the government system to identify and support victims of trafficking. Um, So the contract is held currently by the Salvation Army. They've had the contract for the last two terms. They then uh, subcontract out to other providers for the housing and the outreach services, um, and they control all of that. So I'm not sure on how long the people can stay within those services because originally it was going to be 45 days and then they were to be moved on but it's all changed because again covid has stopped a lot of the move on options so people are just stuck in one place they also now assess people before they move them on to make sure they're ready to move on so that can lengthen their stays so we need more safe houses in london yeah i think the biggest need would probably be if i'm honest looking across the board men because it's always men that seem to get left out and we forget that there's men and there's families. Mm. Mm. There's families with children. You know, there's such a great need out there across the country, really. As in, as in men who've been trafficked? Yes. Yeah, we, we visited a, a safe house of men who'd been trafficked and the stories were so varied. D- things different. that we'd, you know, men who had escaped their home, home country uh, because they were being blackmailed by, I think it was a man in the Navy... Japanese Navy, I think, and he was being blackmailed by his captain and then he left and now he was working on a marijuana farm in England somewhere, which, sorry to be ignorant, I didn't even know that existed around here. And then he'd been there for years and years and years, you know. Anyway, it was one of those interesting things that 
it's something that you don't think it really, I, I don't know, I think people immediately think it happens, because it does happen mostly to women and girls. You think, oh, that's that's where we're going to help, but mm. it does happen but to men. But then I think the National Referral Mechanism figures for last year, it was more men than women. Really? Mm. But then we've got trafficking has evolved in many ways, and you've got the county lines with the young mm-hmm. men of this country and women that are used as drug mules that are and construction and yes. forced labour and all these things. So I think are... it's changing because, as I said, when we started back in 2000, 2004, sexual exploitation was well known. Mm. But a lot of the other things weren't known. And the more that we're working together, the more you're finding different forms of trafficking. And of the 169 women that you've housed, what are the sort of situations that they've come from? And are there any particular themes or... Friends. No, and they can be so different. So last week we had two new women. We actually call them guests in our house, but we had two new guests. And it's a prime example because one has been enslaved in the house in this country for over 20 years as a domestic servant. Um, she cannot read or write in any language and she cannot speak English because they've made sure that she couldn't have so chance isolated. to learn because that then makes her more reliant on her traffickers because she doesn't actually know what's going on outside that house. And do you know where she's where she's from? She's Indian. And then the other one that came has been sexually exploited on the streets for five years. So, But she can read and write in her own language and speak and read and write in English. She's very tough and very out there and very loud, whereas the other one's very quiet and very reserved. So... Those are just two examples of what can walk through the door, which is why you have to have bespoke packages for every person that you deal with because they're going to need so much different help. How do you deal with a guest in your house that doesn't speak English and and can't read or write? Does she know that she was trafficked for 20 years? Well, that's a very good point because, no, they often don't. She thinks that the way she was treated is normal. Wow. She thinks that sleeping under a table is normal that to be fed scraps is normal um so it can be difficult it's a good thing to try and do with somebody from another country that doesn't read and write is not only try and teach them english but try and get in we have many volunteers who are absolutely fabulous in so many different ways um and to try and get one in to teach them in their own language to read and write because they might want to go home but it's just a good thing for them to be able to do and then we build on that and we teach them english as well Wow. So there's a lot of people learning Merry Christmas, ding dong, the bells are ringing at the moment in the house, but never mind. <laughs> you love that. You can join in. Yeah, I can join in. And all the Christmas decorations as well. They go up next Sunday. We're very Wonderful. excited. Wow. So you have to deal with these people as well, like just with the way you are. Do you, do you change at all or are you always Karen, the same straight talking Karen? No, I'm probably just the straight talking Karen. <laughs> I think it's... When you're dealing with people, I think they need to know the truth. Mm. Yeah. And I don't think it helps. Like, I've always said you should never promise, never lie to a victim. And as in promises, none of us in this room can be 100% sure of something we can do. Like, Mm, you could say, I'm going to come to dinner with you tonight, Julia, and then you get a phone call in half an hour and you can't go. Right. So you don't make false promises. And sometimes people say, well, little white lies help. Like... Tell them that court won't be too bad. No, that's ridiculous. You tell them from the off. This is a long procedure and this is what's going to happen to you when you go to court. And it's not very pleasant because you're going to relive what you've been through. 
So I think it's better because you don't want them getting to court and finding that out because mm. that's awful. No. That just re-traumatises people. Yeah. So they have to know the truth. Obviously, you have to be, the way you present the truth, you have to be quite gentle. Yeah. Not quite as blunt as I can be sometimes. But they need to know the truth. And that's what you'd expect from each other, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And from all of us. We wouldn't expect to lie to each other. We wouldn't expect no, to somebody actually, that's, that's the kind of something yeah. for you. They're adults as well. What's the youngest? You said 16 to 70. 15. 15. But we're only meant to take over 18. But we've taken people that have had age disputes. So we took somebody. She came in on a passport that said she was 26. She said she was 15. Having mm. had her in the house after a month, I knew she was 15 because she used to stick her chewing gum under my table, <laughs> which drove me mad. That's just a 15-year-old thing, is it? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. She was there and wouldn't get out of bed to go to college and then didn't want to do her own work. So there was all these things yeah. that I'm sure are 15. Yeah. yeah. So they present. So while the solicitors are trying to work the court case out, we have had youngsters because social services are ever saying, no, they're over 18. So mm. it's extra safeguarding to put in. It's extra work because they've been ripped away from their families. Mm. And you are that family suddenly, you know. We've had poor Anna, the house manager, teaching people to ride bikes up and down the road and things that kids want to do. Yeah. Because life is traumatic, but you need to do nice things as well, normal things. Like one of our um, support workers has just learned to be a swim coach, so now we've got five of them that are going to learn to swim. Tell oh, us about God. some more of the nice things you do with them. We belong to Kew Gardens. So they love going to Kew Gardens. They love going do dog walking. One of our ex-guests has now moved on greatly in her life and she, her dog is being trained to be a therapy dog for the NHS. Cool. So he comes to walk with the women. We always celebrate birthdays. We always celebrate any religious festival that they would like to celebrate. So we do do quite a lot of cake eating. <laughs> Diwali recently cake eating and lots of uh, sparklers in the yeah. garden. We do gardening with them and yoga and they love art they're going to the cinema this week oh what are they going to see i think they're going to see that lyle lyle crocodile oh that looks fun yeah because we have to find something that you can understand if you don't speak english very well yeah so we have to be careful what we send them to do they watch a lot of tv in the house yes in different languages but then we watch it together as well so we try and say this is what we do we watch strictly and then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we try and show them things that we would do normally in this country, like we play cards, as you know, because mm, yeah. you do do that with your families yeah. or board games. Because I think as well, part of moving towards your independence is to seeing that there is a better life and it is different, but there's fun things ahead. It's not all about the darkness that you're suffering. And do you stay there a lot or you live out of the house? So we have one night worker who does a waking night. We have Anna, the house manager, who lives there so there's always two members of staff and I tend to stay a couple of times a week it just helps you know so at the moment we have somebody that could give birth at any minute wow so um we need staff there because you can't send someone to hospital and not have any staff in the house because no. the other women still have needs and sometimes it's in the night sometimes the police come at three in the morning so you need to be there ready prepared for that the police come sorry to do to to bring someone oh gosh yeah, they're like, just ring and go, can we come now? And you're like, oh, it's 3 a.m. Yes, yes, sure, I'm awake. So when the women have, you said you had 12 babies in the house. We've had 12. Had. Yeah, had 12 over our time. So when, 
um, a woman either brings a child or gives birth, have any of those 12 children, have they known who the father is and the father's able to visit or is it all um, a that, kind of circumstance of what they're trafficking? They've all come through exploitation. Yeah. So, Well, we were reading, um, Caroline Hockey, who knows you very well, told us to read all about um, a Hungarian case that you were the lead police officer on or... Well. Near the top. Near the top, yeah. <laughs> you were doing all the victim interviews. I did the victim yeah. stuff, yeah. And and that was a man and a woman, a married couple. And, no, not a married couple. Brother and a sister. Brother and a sister. And what's weird, that's something else, that when you read these case studies and you see what's happening to people, it's like, it's, a, it's mad to me that a man and a woman mm. can do it together yeah. and have that, you know, have that, like, in cahoots, let's take this woman. I mean, this particular story was a woman that had been um, sexually exploited uh, by that man and that woman. And you ha- you found it because she went to a sexual health clinic and then you had to do all these interviews. Mm. She was very sad. She was ultra vulnerable, you know, looking for a better life and then totally exploited and they were particularly evil. It's funny because sometimes people think when it's a woman doing it, it's even worse than when it's the man doing the controlling. But we've seen it so much. But it's kind of incredible that that woman who was so vulnerable was able to was it convict them? Did they were they convicted? Yes. I mean that mm. is amazing. It's born of their own strength, isn't mm. it? And I sometimes think that when they go and give evidence, they've taken back control. They've yeah. finally taken back control of their lives, and they are in the driving seat. And, and you that's can see part them. of the yeah, healing sometimes. process. I mean, some of them say they can't ever do it, they can't face it. But those that do, on the whole, you can see them growing stronger. And when they have that day, yes, they're often petrified, but when they've done it, that inner strength is amazing, absolutely amazing. Karen, how many of your guests do you think actually get justice in the end? It's hard to say, and it's a mixture because some just don't want to go through the court mm. procedure. They're just too terrified or they just want a different life. They want to get on with it. Um, Court is difficult because the burden of proof in this country is very, very high, which it should be in a way because we don't want to lock up innocent people. So the percentage that actually go to court is lower than I'd like. And do you think the situation is getting better or worse? You've run Bikita House for how many years now? Seven and a half. Seven and a half. Do you think the situation's getting better or worse? Overall, so I've been in this world for 22 years. I think there's a lot of things that we have to look at. So awareness has so improved over the years. Um, there's so many of us working together. The Human Trafficking Foundation brings all of us together to look at different areas that we can actually work on and make better. Um, there's the national system, isn't there? The NRM for identifying and looking after victims run by the Salvation Army. Um, St Mary's University, um, they've got an Ubiquita Centre for slavery, exploitation and abuse. So research is really important as well as awareness. You know, looking after the victims is important. But there's always going to be room for improvement, isn't it? Our Modern Slavery Act is seven years old. And you yourselves, you know, you're doing what you can to raise the awareness. So you've seen the changes you've said today in types of trafficking. So if you've seen it in the last few years. Since that act was written, things have changed massively. They need to review that act. 
Mm. And they need to use people like the police to say what part of the act has worked for the police and what doesn't. Let's mm. change it. People like ourselves that are at grassroots level, what part of this act is working and what's not? Let's do a proper review, change it and make it better. That's what I think the government should do. Do you think it benefits getting all the police forces across the UK in a room and telling them and asking them that question? It would be interesting to see their answers yeah. because they all work in such different ways. But for me, you need to ask the people that are meant to be using the act, mm. not the mm. people that are writing it, because they don't see the problems on the ground floor. Of like how you apply it, yeah. yeah. And is there, obviously there's more, you said earlier there's more need for safe houses across the UK then. Yeah. So that's another thing that yeah. we'll get our thinking caps on. Yeah. <laughs> um, Karen, what should someone do if they are concerned, someone they know or someone they've seen has been enslaved or is being enslaved? Well, obviously, if they think there's an immediate risk to life or somebody's really, they need to phone 999. If they just have some information or they have a feeling or they they just want to share that so somebody else can look at it for them, we've got other phone lines they can ring. So Crime Stoppers now will take the information. And Crime Stoppers is run now by uh, McDuffie who actually was in the anti-slavery world for quite a long time. So he's got that knowledge and he's imparted it to those that work for him. So they're on 0800 555 You've got the Salvation Army have got a helpline on 0800 0808 3733. And Unseen, they've been mm-hmm. running the Modern Slavery Helpline. So they're on 08000 121 so all of those helplines are there, you know, for people to phone into if they don't want to actually phone the police. The Clure Initiative, mm, yeah. that's got their car wash app, which apparently is very effective. You know, you don't have to get involved. You just go on and say what you're worried about at the local car wash. So, and also on the internet now, everybody's internet mad, aren't they? There's all these different people that have put all the signs of slavery that you can look for. So even if you're not sure, you can get on the internet and have a look. Yeah, so that's one of the things that we constantly seem to talk about with, with people who are just learning about slavery. How can the public try to combat modern slavery? And you've mentioned things about how they, who they can call, but yeah. is the, what, what do you think the biggest thing for, for the public to do to, to combat it? I think it? they should make themselves aware of the signs by going on the internet. Mm. And then sometimes I think we're quite good at not seeing things that we don't want to see. So they need to make themselves aware and then look, you know, if you go to the car wash or you have your nails done or there's a beggar in the street, is there somebody around them that could possibly be controlling them? How are they interacting with you? You know when people are being normal with you and when they're not. Who's living in the flat next door to you or the house next door to you? Is it possibly a brothel? Is Mm. it crammed full of people that are being controlled by somebody and taken off to work somewhere every day? You can see that just by looking or you can have an idea if you work in a factory or on a farm, who are you working with? Because they don't just work on their own. They're put into places to work and control. Mm. So, you know, and you have breaks. You talk to people. How is that person? Yeah. How are they? It's just opening up to what's around you. And I think it's don't be afraid to seek advice from one of those phone lines because it's better to make that phone call than to leave somebody to be exploited or to die. Mm. And then there's other things, isn't there? If you've got spare time, you could maybe look on the internet to volunteer somewhere locally. There's loads of volunteer positions. Or if you've got any money, you can donate to somebody that looks after the victims. But I think the thing that you can't do is not anything. Mm. You need to do Mm. something. 
Karen, can I ask you a more personal question? Oh, you dear. have this unwavering sense of positivity and how do you maintain that when you're running the house and dealing with so many different things and so many other people's trauma? How do you maintain your sense of self? Because I think because I'm quite selfish. So the people that I deal <laughs> you're with... You're very much not. No, I think the people that I deal with, they show me how lucky my life is. Mm. Like I've got lots of friends that I go out for dinner and on holidays with. I've got great family. They've they've not got the things I've had, and that just makes you want to help them. Yeah. And you see such positive things for them. If they're cheerful and they're trying, what excuse have I got to not be positive? Yeah. Yeah. That would be ridiculous. And I think you have to be positive because Absolutely. then you g people up and you hopefully get help from everybody around you. If you go in and you're miserable and you keep saying, "Oh, we're not doing any good," it's not the right thing to do, and it's not the right way to help victims because there's times to be quiet with them but there's times to be beside them and shouting and happy and just the way you've got to be love it i love that karen it's been the absolute dream having you on today thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful stories and 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 showing us the stronger side of, of fighting modern slavery and human trafficking been lovely to speak to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Coming to see us again. Soon. I yeah. think we need to do a Christmas visit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just thinking that. Please <laughs> come and eat with us. Play Uno. Yeah, <laughs> bring some mince pies. Yeah. Thank you to Karen Anstis for joining us this week. You can find out more about safe houses by clicking some of the links in our show notes. There's also lots of really useful information about how modern slavery affects every single one of us and what you can do to help in the fight to end it. Small actions we can all do will go a really long way. Join us next week for another amazing conversation with someone who's using their profile to shine a light on this issue that we're so passionate about. F.A. Obada plays for the Washington Commanders in the NFL and is one of the most famous Brits currently playing in the league. He and his sister were trafficked to England as children and were left homeless once they arrived in London in the early 2000s. Despite his heartbreaking story, he is always positive and passionate about using his voice for good. So please join us next week for that amazing conversation. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.